Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from James chapter 4, verses 6 through 12. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. We're growing in favor with managers, with their bosses, quickly receiving promotions. However, they were soon faced with the expectation that they would regularly perform and assist in convenience abortions. As a Christian, that expectation violated their convictions of biblical principles and required that they make a decision speak up, refuse to participate, and risk the reprisal and potential negative career consequences, or remain silent, acquiesce, and violate both conscience and clear biblical teaching. The decision was weighty. In this case, the medical professional spoke up and, thanks be to God, was released by managers from assisting in the abortions without prejudice or impunity. But not all decisions are like that. Some have devastating consequences to career or even to life. Like in the case of John the Baptist, who spoke out against the sinful practice of Herod having his brother Philip's wife. And for that, John the Baptist lost his life. For the Christian, this passage calls us to make a decision. It exhorts us to resist worldly selfish pride, and to embrace godliness and humility. 
Make no doubt about it. James's words fly in the face and conflict with what pop culture and media would prescribe to us. Contrast the culture and the world system that praises and rewards the proud, independent, anti-God, intellectual arrogance. This passage calls us to embrace an attitude that is costly, unnatural, and against the status quo, and that's an attitude of humility. The continuous thread woven throughout this passage, which ought to make us tremble, is this. God opposes the proud. He gives grace, however, to the humble. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, as Matthew preached on this chapter, the challenge to humility is not primarily something that comes from without or something that's outside our hearts, circumstances, or conditions. The challenge to humility is something that comes from within. I don't know about you, but so oftentimes my sinful heart pushes, kicks, and punches in order to get what I think I need. From time to time, I will run over what's in my way in order to get it. Time to time, we arrogantly seek our own pleasure, our own honor, and our own reputation, even before God's. And James, in his pull-no-punches style, will have none of it. He rebukes that attitude. At one point, interestingly, in this section, he calls his readers adulterous. He's talking to Christians. This is heavy hitting. So James calls us to make a costly decision. To humble ourselves, to turn our backs on the world, to submit to God. In essence, he's calling us to a lifestyle of humility and continual repentance. And without question, such a lifestyle takes a serious amount of grace. Amen? But thanks be to God that grace is available in abundance. Verse 6 says, He gives more grace. And in light of the condition of our hearts, which are fickle, prone to wander, and the draw of the world, in light of the fact that we are creatures created by God for God, we desperately need grace. We need grace, which is God's unmerited favor. We need grace to honor God, grace to resist the world, grace to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Grace is necessary. Grace is available. Grace is amazing. But grace is not automatic. A quick summary of what James is telling us today is that grace overflows to those who pursue humility towards God. Grace overflows to those who pursue humility towards God and men. Well, since this passage calls us to pursue humility, it would be good, I think, for us to define what we mean. But one definition that I find very helpful says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and service. 
Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and sinfulness. For me, this definition brings to mind a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, where the prophet says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his robe filled the temple. And in seeing the Lord's glory, Isaiah rightly assessed himself in comparison to God's holiness. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. After seeing the king in God's glory, Isaiah is aware of his sinfulness. Or the experience of Peter, after seeing the miracle and the majesty of the Lord, who filled Peter's nets with fish after fishing all night and catching nothing, Peter replies, depart from me, I am a sinful man. As in the case of Isaiah, as he drew near to God, Peter saw himself in light of the majesty of God, and he was brought low. Friends, we must remember that God does not grade on the curve. For him, it's pass or fail, 100% or no percent, perfect or imperfect. Nor does he compare us one to another. He alone is the standard. He compares all to his perfection. He's commanded his people, be holy, for he is holy. So seeing ourselves in reference to God's holiness should have a humbling effect and should cause us to see our need for Jesus. And to that end, Douglas Moo helps us and says the following. To rightly humble ourselves before the Lord means to recognize our own spiritual poverty, to acknowledge consequently our desperate need of God's help, and to submit to his commanding will for our lives. So as we recognize our spiritual poverty, our desperate need for God, we will surely be made aware of our sins, and therefore, our need of repentance. I don't know about you, but thank God for the gift of repentance. Thank God for the gift of repentance. It's a sweet gift. And it's a gateway to grace. James calls us to humility, not for humility's sake, but so that through humility we might find more of God's grace. Because as James teaches, and which is the theme of what we're talking about, grace overflows to those who pursue humility. So my point, number one, is this. Humility before God requires the persistent practice of repentance. Humility before God requires the persistent practice of repentance. The great reformer Martin Luther opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Cathedral. The first of these theses was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. And so initially, as you read that, you might think, well, bad news. I guess according to that, I'll never get it right. 
That's not what Martin Luther meant at all. Luther believed that the best way to make advancement and progress in the Christian life was the regular, all-of-life-encompassing, persistent practice of repentance. I believe he's right. David Mathis of Desiring God Ministries writes, All of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience. Listen to that. It's not a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture. But before you can practice repentance, you must adopt an attitude of humility. As you look at verses 7 through 9, James wastes no time describing how we're to walk out humility before God. He begins in verse 7 with the overarching header, Submit to God. Submit to God. This acts as a bookend of what he's going to say and the ultimate goal of these verses. But then he fires off three impacting couplet statements. And they fall like a jackhammer on the cement of our hearts. They come in rapid fire and have the effect of calling us to do some spiritual exercise and spiritual house cleaning. So he says, firstly, in verse 7, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. James tells us to resist the devil. The promise is that if we do, he will flee. We know that the devil exists, that he's a liar, that he's the enemy of the Christian. He comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He offers immoral delicacies laced with lies and the promise of satisfaction. Just give in to the world's standards. Just click that website. Just speak your mind with no filter. Then you will receive the satisfaction that you crave and that you deserve. Paul tells us that our battle with the devil is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul then goes on in chapter 6 to give a list of spiritual weapons for battle. For the Christian, that is critical. We kid ourselves, friends, if we think we can live this Christian life without gauging in spiritual battle. We must recognize the enemy's strategy is to attack God's authority and to bring doubt about God's word. He did it at the beginning in the Garden of Eden to Eve. Did God really say? That's what he said to Eve. He did it to Jesus in the desert. God told him he was the son of God and the devil said, if you are the son of God. Friends, we need to be on guard. James tells us to resist the devil and he will flee. But then he goes on, the other half of his exhortation is 
draw near to God with the promise, great promise, he will draw near to you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. The context of this use of drawing near implies that there's been a drift or a separation. Draw near is an urging to come back, to repent, to submit, to give our lives afresh to God. In Lamentations, we read the following. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let's lift our hearts and hands to God in the heavens. James makes a call that we give up running away from God and we return to God. And that's a beautiful illustration of this that many of you know can be seen in the story of the prodigal son who after squandering his inheritance and bringing shame and embarrassment to his family, he returned to his father. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to his father. And as his father saw him, from afar off, he ran to him, to meet him, hugged him, kissed him. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Then later in verse 8, the second couplet, we read, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, or wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Second set of statements is blunt, to the point, and not the James typical kind and gentle type of address of brothers or beloved brothers. Here James calls them sinners and double-minded. Now James sees them as believers. But James, in essence, is seeking to knock them off their high horses of pride and call them to radical repentance. Repentance that affects every area of their life. Similarly, washing hands is reflective of repenting of external behavior. Purify hearts, as he said, of repenting of internal and thoughts that lead to that behavior. Oftentimes, sadly, we believers allow sinful practices and patterns of thinking to stay lodged in our lives draws us away from God. Friends, we need to wash our hands of those things. We need to be done with those things. The phrase double-minded, he uses, drives home James' indictment of these readers that allowed themselves to drift from a single-minded passion and diligence and allegiance to God. And so, they vacillate between being committed to the kingdom of God and following the kingdom of the world. Can you relate? James says that it's made them weak and unstable in their faith. So he calls them to purify their hearts. Put off those things that lead them astray. And then in his third statement, he says, Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Another translation says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. My goodness, James, getting awfully down. What about rejoicing? 
Don't misinterpret James' words here. He's not against rejoicing in the Lord always. Quite the contrary. James is calling out and decrying a superficial joy, a temporary happiness that comes from the world's pleasures and sins that have taken the place of God. And the goal of his words are to break up the prideful and callous areas of our hearts which lead us to drift and lose our delight in God. Their their effect is to reveal the duplicity of our heart and perhaps the love for the world. So James' phraseology is right, and it's reminiscence of phraseology that the prophets used when calling people to repentance. For example, in the book of Joel, we read, Joel warning the people of God's impending judgment, and he says, Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and you will weep. The Apostle Paul tells us, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief leads to repentance. That's a good thing. Friends, sin is pleasurable. No doubt. For a season. But in the end, it leads to separation and death. And contrary to what our media would put out on a regular basis... God does not think sin is funny. Therefore, it is a kindness of God to warn us, to correct us, to convict us, and if necessary, to grieve us when we have bought into deceptive worldly patterns and thinkings that cause us to drift that cause us to become proud. It's God's kindness. Those things can hinder and shipwreck our faith. Remember James' overall theme. Those who remain proud, God will resist. But to those who practice humility, he will pour out grace. So point number one, humility before God requires the persistent practice of of repentance. Point two, which will be much shorter, humility before men requires not playing the judge. Humility before God, before men, requires not playing the judge. Well, James continues in blunt force wording to chip away at another area of pride. Verse 11 says, do not speak evil against another. In verse 11 and 12, he calls out, The sinfulness of critical judgment, judgmental speech, speech that speaks evil of and slanders another brother. Judgmental speech is often linked with speech that is selfish, leads to quarrels, incites jealousy, is harmful, and ultimately comes from pride. Now before we jump into heeding James' admonition, I want to make sure we understand what he is not saying. James is not saying that we should never claim that something is right or wrong. 
or claim that something is sinful or not sinful, or that something honors God or doesn't honor God. To do that would be to ignore a whole host of Scripture, to deny it. In fact, Scripture mandates in numerous places that we determine what is evil and not. Paul emphatically commands us, 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Romans 12.9 says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And then in 12.17, Paul says, pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable. So indeed, we are to discern and to teach, and to preach what is evil and what is good, what is honorable and what is not. And we are called to teach and to practice what is good and to refrain from what is evil. And of course, the standard for all of that is the Word of God. There is a rightful judging that we are called to do. That's between good and evil, according to the word of God. But having said that, we are not called. We are never to position ourselves as the judge over another. We're called not to slander another, regardless of their belief or practice or race or gender or ethnicity or religion. James says, do not speak evil against another. The speech he's referring to is a type of harmful speech that slanders and criticizes, that stirs up jealousy, that's pejorative, and that's prideful. Leviticus tells us, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. This is what Jesus was referring to when he said, judge not that you be not judged. And Paul reminds Titus to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and get this, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Slander, critical judgments, speaking evil of another are arrogant. They're offensive to God. And They're a quick, surefire way to division. And friends, judging a brother is particularly wicked because it usurps God's position who alone is worthy to judge. It makes us sit in judgment over the law versus being submitted to it. And James asks us, who are you to judge your brother? It's like you're saying, move over, God. Since I'm so perfect and I'm such an expert, let me show you what's right and wrong, what's good and what's bad. James tells us there's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge, and it's not us. Such an attitude is filled with deadly, deceptive pride. And God opposes the proud. Friends, I don't want to be opposed by God. I don't want God to oppose me. I don't want him to resist me. I don't want you to be opposed 
by God. I don't want him to resist you. The reality, as Jesus taught us, is that he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility before men requires not playing the judge. And humility before God requires the persistent practice of repentance. So in our passage today, James calls us to make some hard decisions. And no one gets a pass. No one gets out of this. And these decisions have consequences. Will we pursue the world? Or will we pursue humility? Will we pursue our kingdom? Or will we pursue God's? That's like a daily question. To love and pursue the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. To act as judge over your brother is to insert yourself in the place of God. So please give ear to the following questions as we wrap up. Where is God currently showing you your need for grace? Where is he calling you to repent? What lie or temptation has got you doubting God or causing you to resist him? Where have you bought into the world system? When's the last time that you found yourself drawing near to God, waiting patiently in prayer for him, confessing your sin? Have you drifted from a single-minded focus and passion for God or some way become callous and distant? And lastly, have you spoken evil of your brother, judged your brother, and in so doing exalted yourself to the place of God? Friends, today, I don't know what heart challenge or temptation you're facing. Perhaps you're tempted to retaliate for painfully and unjustly being hurt by a friend, perhaps a coworker, perhaps a loved one. You're tempted to strike back. You're going to show them who they're messing with. And you're going to let them feel the pain that you have felt. Perhaps your actions toward another have been laced with bitterness, impatience, jealousy, and it's led to relational tension, distance, or even fracture. Perhaps you continue to battle the lies of what the world and culture would say about sexual purity, and you're fighting for purity, and the battle is raging. Perhaps you're struggling with unmet desires for health, financial provision, or career success. Wherever you are, I encourage you, whatever challenge you're facing, do something. Take some time to be alone with God. Take some time to be alone with God. No one knows better the tug of the world, the lure and deceptiveness of the world, than God. No one understands better the pressure, the tug of temptation, the weaknesses of our hearts, and the effect of sin. Humble yourself. Draw near to God. Submit to God. 
Repent of unbelief. Wait for God. And friends, the truth is, as James has told us, as we humble ourselves before God, his grace will be available to us. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, before your word, all of us stand guilty. We stand convicted. Lord, you alone, as your word says, are the only judge, the only holy one. And so, Father, it is a kindness for you to tell us to humble ourselves. And so we do that now. We humble ourselves before you. Father, we ask that you would help our hearts to draw near to you, to resist the pull of the world, to trust what your word says, to give ourselves to trusting and submitting to God. Father, help us. Father, where we need to do business with God, we ask that you would help us to make that time to pursue humility, not just to expect that it comes, but to pursue it. Father, thank you for the truth of your word that the God of all creation, as we draw near, as we humble ourselves, as we come in faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will draw near to us. Lord, we see him and him alone as our righteousness. We trust Christ and Christ alone for our righteousness. Father, we come in his name. We bow before you. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.